Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode of our ongoing series, Six Degrees of Song of the South. Walt Disney got serious about Song of the South in the summer of 1944. The first writer he hired to adapt Joel Chandler Harris's stories was Dalton Raymond, a historian from Louisiana whose previous Hollywood resume consisted of largely uncredited consulting on Southern set films of the 1930s, such as Jezebel and The Little Foxes. Before Raymond's screenplay was even finished, Disney became aware that the Black community was skeptical of the project. The Negro situation is a dangerous one, a Disney publicist wrote in an internal memo, further explaining, Between the Negro haters and the Negro lovers, there are many chances to run afoul of situations that could run the gamut, all the way from the nasty to the controversial. The Disney executives made an attempt to commission research that would help them to toe the line between the two factions. They met with distribution officers from 20th Century Fox, who had worked on the all-black musical Stormy Weather, 
and who shared the challenges that film had faced in the Deep South, where movie theaters were segregated. Fox had booked the film in white theaters and black theaters, and reported that neither audience was happy about the film's representation of African Americans. Stormy Weather, of course, was an anomaly in the 1940s, as a Hollywood film made to showcase black talent. And when such films received mixed responses, the studios generally decided they weren't worth making. Hollywood claimed that it was risky to cast black performers in any kind of prominent role as anything but a subservient worker, because if they did, those movies would be censored or boycotted in the South. The conventional wisdom is that studios made these concessions to Southern racists because the Southern box office was so valuable. But it actually wasn't. Sure, if a movie was a middling success elsewhere in the country, you'd want it to do okay in the South, too, because the difference between half-full houses or empty houses in New Orleans or Memphis could mean the difference between just breaking even or losing money on a film. But in general, the people in Hollywood who were making decisions based on Southern box office returns were doing so without a lot of reliable, empirical data. They were likely to take a Baton Rouge theater owner's word for what sold tickets and what didn't, in lieu of hard numbers. And when they did have hard data, it often showed that Southern moviegoers were indifferent moviegoers at best. The average takes of the biggest movie houses in the biggest cities in the South accounted for a fraction of what a comparably-sized theater would net on the East Coast. Movies that were blockbusters everywhere else, such as Cecil B. DeMille's epics, often failed in the South, as did movies with uniquely Southern themes. It was so bad in certain cities that Variety's regional box office reports would sometimes focus on the lackluster performance of all films across the board in, say, New Orleans, a city with plenty of other things to do than go to the movies. By the time Song of the South was in release, the Southern box office accounted for less than 10% of the average studio film's total profit. World War II had allowed more Black people to become more visible to more white people in what white people had perceived as conventionally white spaces than ever before. In a perfect world, by 1946, either Southern audiences would have become less racist and more tolerant of representations of Black people as something other than grinning servants, or else Hollywood, coming off some of the best years in its history, would have been emboldened to ignore the demands of racists who barely went to the movies anyway. Of course, neither of those things happened. But it is significant that Disney wasn't trying to make Song of the South specifically to appeal to that Southern audience that refused to go see an otherwise all-white musical unless MGM cut a single scene of Lena Horne singing in a nightclub. Much like today's politicians holding on to a fantasy of centrism that would allow them to embrace, quote-unquote, 
both sides, even as the very phrase both sides becomes a dog whistle for sponsoring racism. Disney didn't want to alienate the racist audience, but they also didn't want to alienate a more progressive audience. Disney wanted to make a movie that glorified the storytelling tradition of slaves as filtered through the perspective of various different white men without being accused of racism. It never occurred to the studio to hire a black writer or a black director, which would have been absolutely revolutionary in Hollywood at that time. Instead, Disney did what a Hollywood conservative would have assumed was the next best thing. He hired a communist Jew. In an effort to bring in another voice on the screenplay to balance that of hardline Confederate descendant Dalton Raymond, Walt Disney specifically sought out someone from the opposite end of the political spectrum, Maurice Rapf, who, despite or perhaps because of having grown up in Hollywood as the son of MGM executive Harry Rapf, had become an avowed communist. Like other communists in Hollywood and elsewhere, one of Maurice Rapf's main interests was civil rights. White communists saw themselves as allies to African Americans in the fight for civil rights. And in Hollywood, this allyship went beyond standing by Black people in their actions because white people had power to get creative jobs on mainstream movies that simply weren't going to Black people in the 1930s and 40s. As Raff's comrade, fellow communist screenwriter Ben Barsman put it, we influence the producers to make pictures about real people, about women. We keep out the step-and-fetch-it characters. Movies are less bad because of us. But as Maurice Raff would later admit, despite his efforts... He was unable to make Song of the South less bad. And shortly after the film was released, Rapf found himself on the run from subpoenas and the various committees investigating communism in the film industry. He would never work on a Hollywood feature film again. Join us, won't you, for the story of Maurice Rapf Hollywood's White Allies and The Blacklist. Harry Rapf had been a vaudeville agent in New York until 1921, when he moved his family to Los Angeles so he could take a job at Warner Brothers. In 1924, he transferred to MGM, where he remained an executive producer for 25 years until he died in 1949. He discovered and mentored Joan Crawford. Harry's son, Maurice, grew up with another second-generation Hollywood kid, Bud Schulberg, the son of executive B.P. Schulberg. On weekends, the boys would treat the MGM backlot as a playground. During summers, when the entire movie colony would decamp to Malibu, Bud and Maurice would go on fishing trips 
and then sell their bounty to the likes of Frank Capra, Maureen O'Sullivan, and anyone else who happened to be renting a house nearby. In those days, everybody knew everybody, and everybody kept their doors open. Harry Rapp, like so many other film executives, was Jewish. But unlike other moguls who eagerly assimilated in fear that their faith and ethnicity could be used against them, Harry Rapp tried to make films at MGM reflecting his heritage. In the early days of the talkies, Rapp built movies around the talents of the stars of Yiddish theater and vaudeville. But by the early 30s, the entire industry became aware of the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe. Instead of using their powerful medium to draw attention to what was going on and the danger of institutionalized bigotry, the industry largely heeded a call from the Anti-Defamation League to, as Maurice Rapp later wrote, switch to a low-profile state as far as Jewish subjects were concerned, to eliminate Jewish characters, good or bad, and to avoid subjects in which Jewish issues might be raised. Maurice added, The Jewish movie industry, with its worldwide influence, decided not only to abandon Jews as characters, whether they're funny, sympathetic, or evil, but not to make any effort at all to combat anti-Semitism on the screen. This policy was ostensibly meant to protect the film industry from anti-Semitic criticism and harassment. In other words, a pro-Jewish organization was asking the largely Jewish film industry to not only repress its ethnic identity, which most of the industry was doing anyway, but also avoid discussing the very real political events of the day so as to better continue to sell its product to anti-Jewish racists. Harry Rapp's career at MGM began to fade in 1933, when he suffered a heart attack and was forced to take several months off. When he came back to work, he found that a new generation of producers had leapfrogged over him. Now he was perceived as being over the hill, And to add insult to injury, the movies he was now shepherding through production weren't very good. Just before his heart attack, he had produced two Oscar-winning films, The Champ and The Sin of Madelon Claudet, as well as the excellent Joan Crawford-Clark Gable melodrama, Possessed. When he came back and struggled to produce hits, Harry was paired with a young, ambitious future executive named Dory Sherry to run a unit producing B-movies. Rapp took pride in some of these films, but he was not satisfied with the work to the extent that he had been before his first heart attack. And yet, because he had no stock options at the studio, he was forced to work until he died of another heart attack in 1949. Maurice's earliest ambition was to become a screenwriter. I found that movies could be a lot better if the writing was better, and I thought, I could do that, he'd say. Maurice Rapp wrote his first produced story in 1931, which became a Jackie Cooper movie called Divorce in the Family. But then he went to college, and then he went to Russia. 
Rapf first went to Stanford, which he hated. He realized that there were only three men in power in Hollywood who had gone to college, and they had all gone to Dartmouth. So he transferred. Maurice was a junior at Dartmouth when he convinced his father to give him $325 for an all-inclusive trip to Russia, sponsored by a student group. Maurice told Harry that he wanted to see the Moscow Art Theater, and Harry thought this could be a useful experience for his son, who he hoped would follow in his footsteps as a movie producer. Maurice's roommate and old friend, Bud Schulberg, was also on the six-week trip. Rapf was first exposed to Soviet socialism on this trip, and he was inspired by its potential. Before going to Russia, his primary political position had been pro-peace and anti-war profiteering. Though he had not been a communist, he had been anti-anti-communist, because he believed red-baiting was merely a tactic to push Americans into a mindset of war with Russia. From the limited evidence he saw on this state-approved trip, he believed the collective educational and employment systems really worked and were run democratically. He was also impressed at the nation's militant anti-Nazism, clearly a difference from what he was used to in an anti-interventionist America, and certainly in Hollywood, where Jews had all but volunteered to silence themselves in the face of what would prove to be an existential threat. College student Maurice Rapf embraced these positive aspects of Soviet communism and made excuses for what he didn't like, such as the dictatorial rule of Joseph Stalin and the fact that when they went to see an American movie in Moscow, the Betty Davis drama Cabin in the Cotton, The film was censored and cut so that it appeared to be about a worker's victorious revolt against an exploitative system, when the actual Hollywood version included a last act depicting a reconciliation between the oppressor and the oppressed. On this same trip, Rapf visited Berlin, which in 1934 was already incredibly visibly anti-Semitic. This made him all the more impressed that the Russians, unlike the Americans, seemed committed to doing something about Hitler. When Maurice came home espousing the virtues of communism, his father told him he would never be able to succeed in movies if he went red. Harry asked a number of powerful people in Hollywood to talk some sense into his son. Louis B. Mayer, in his office where a photo of Italian fascist Benito Mussolini hung on the wall, told Maurice that communism was bad for the Jews. David O. Selznick was sympathetic to Raff's leftism, but told him that if he wanted to make movies, he would have to forget about politics. These talkings, too, didn't work. By the time Maurice Raff was employed by MGM as a junior writer in 1936, he had joined the Communist Party. He'd later write that while he did attend Marxist study meetings, much of the attraction was social. He and his socialist friends spent a lot of time together on the beach at Malibu, playing volleyball and tanning, and the Communist girls were beautiful.
Rapf was a member of the party for 10 years, and during that time, most of his closest friends were party members too, including many people he knew from MGM and the Screenwriters Guild, where he did most of his party work. Because of the heavy concentration of party members on the Guild, Rapf was frequently elected to serve on the Guild's board of officers in the late 30s and early 1940s, even though he was in his 20s, and the role often meant that he had to negotiate with studio representatives, who were colleagues of his father. The party was manipulating Rapf's complicated relationship with these men, and both sides knew it. The Writers Guild had given Rapf power out of scale with what he enjoyed as an actual writer. The movies Rapf wrote for the first years of his career were, shall we say, not a distinguished lot. Some of the highlights were titles like We Went to College and They Gave Him a Gun. At least Spencer Tracy was in that last one. In 1940, Rapf penned the script for a film called Jenny, about a young woman who instigates a strike at her German father's factory. This movie was boldly anti-Nazi at a time when the studios had not yet decided to stop doing business with Hitler's Germany. And as such, you could call it a success of communist subversion. You could also decide for yourself whether or not that was a bad thing. Raff himself would say that his career was crippled after he became identified with a so-called clinker called Winter Carnival. This movie was set at the annual event of the same name at Dartmouth College, Raff's alma mater. He got involved with the film after his college roommate, Bud Schulberg, had failed to come up with a workable screenplay either on his own or in collaboration with an over-the-hill F. Scott Fitzgerald, who had been hired by independent producer Walter Wanger to help Schulberg along. Wanger threw a party at Dartmouth to introduce the college's literature department to Fitzgerald. That party happened to coincide with Raff's honeymoon trip through the area, so he attended too. Fitzgerald showed up at the party falling down drunk, and chaos ensued. The great writer was fired, and Wanger hired Rapf to collaborate with Schulberg on the screenplay. Aspects of this series of events were later fictionalized by both Schulberg in his novel The Disenchanted and by Fitzgerald in The Last Tycoon. Rapf worked with Schulberg on the script for six weeks, and then Wanger fired Rapf. Schulberg tried to save his friend's job by saying to Wanger, If you fire him, I quit. But it didn't work, and instead of quitting, Schulberg stayed on. Which, Rapf later snarked, is some indication of his character. Rapf's name remained on the script for Witcher Carnival, and the movie was declared to be one of the worst of 1939. Rapf said he couldn't get a job for months after it was released. He put in some time in Columbia's C-Unit, making movies that were cheaper and less distinguished than even B-movies. During World War II, Rapf worked alongside Schulberg in John Ford's filmmaking unit, 
and he sold one story which became a film called Call of the Canyon. But otherwise, he was unemployed in Hollywood for several years. And then he got a call from Walt Disney. Raff had written three films marketed to children or teens, and Disney was looking for a youth-oriented writer for what he was then describing as his first live-action film. Maurice told Walt that he was against the very idea of making a movie based on Joel Chandler Harris's Uncle Remus stories, in which Uncle Remus would inevitably be presented as an Uncle Tom. Walt Disney said, That's exactly why I want you to work on it, because I know you don't think I should make the movie. You're against the black stereotypes. Most of us, even if we have no racial bias, commit boo-boos that offend people all the time. Because you are sensitive to the problem, maybe you can avoid it. Ramph would later say that he was sure that Disney knew he was a communist, because already a reactionary columnist for The Hollywood Reporter named Jack Moffat had published Raff's name as one of the leaders of Hollywood's Communist Party. Raff was not a leader. He was a flunky. But Moffat continued to present him as such, all the way up to the point that Moffat named Raff's name to Huack. As a white man who actually thought about racial inequality at a time when many didn't, Rapf understood that Joel Chandler Harris's retelling of the Uncle Remus stories for white audiences had necessarily altered their original form, function, and meaning. Rapf did some digging, and he found a folklorist interpretation, which led him to believe that Br'er Rabbit could be seen as, quote, a symbol of the oppressed black man who must use brains rather than brawn to outwit his powerful masters. The folklorist in question was B.A. Botkin, who had edited the Federal Writers Project, which had used Depression-era federal funds to send interviewers into the Deep South to capture oral histories of surviving former slaves. Botkin compiled these oral histories into a book, called Lay My Burden Down, A Folk History of Slavery. In Harris's telling, Uncle Remus's stories had been the wise words of a magical Negro who was eager to help naive whites understand the world better. Based on his analysis of the oral histories, however, Botkin concluded that whoever had told these tales to Harris had literally whitewashed the stories that slaves and black workers after the Civil War really told one another, turning them into what he described as a politer form for the entertainment of whites. The real stories, which drew from African folklore and mythology about animals, were stories of subversion, in which the antics of Br'er Rabbit allowed Black people a way of talking to one another about how to achieve small victories in their bad situations, largely by outsmarting their white masters. They were, as Rapf later put it, really stories of slave revolt. Rapf consulted Botkin because he was a radical, and doing so was a progressive thing to do. 
in more than one sense of the word. The very idea of a mainstream publication of the history of the plantation era, from the perspective of black slaves and workers, was a new thing in the mid-1940s. Until a handful of historians made an effort to interview survivors in the 1930s and early 1940s, all records of this era widely distributed were told from the perspective of whites. Thus, a film being made in the mid-1940s had an opportunity for a fuller, multifaceted version of the story, one that wouldn't have been available to filmmakers in the early 1930s, even if they had gone looking for it, which they didn't. But Walt Disney was not really interested in a more accurate depiction of what the Uncle Remus stories had meant to slaves. Today, a lot of creative industries have what are called sensitivity readers, experts on a specific ethnic or other marginalized perspective who read, for example, a book manuscript and give notes as to how it could be tweaked to be more politically correct or at least less unconsciously offensive. If Song of the South was made today, which of course it never would be, Walt Disney would have hired a black sensitivity expert. But instead, they hired Raph, because as an advocate of integration, he had a cursory idea of what black people might find offensive. Raph performed what amounted to a line edit on Raymond's screenplay, cutting out a few bits of derogatory or dehumanizing phrasing and rewriting the depiction of Uncle Remus's employers to make it clear that they were struggling post-Civil War landowners and not pre-Civil War plantation owners prospering off of slavery. This also meant that Uncle Remus wasn't a slave, but a free man, ostensibly choosing to work for this family and spend all of his free time telling magical stories to lonely white children. Of course, the actual degree of choice in the life of the average slave-turned-wage worker in the Reconstruction South was usually extremely limited. But it wasn't Raph's job to completely revise Song of the South's premise. His job was to cover Walt Disney's ass. Disney allowed the Raph-polished screenplay to travel through the grapevine of liberal Hollywood. And along that route, it reached a few actual Black people whose opinions were recorded. A professor at Howard University who reviewed the script, Dr. Elaine Locke, told independent producer Walter Wanger that Disney should have solicited opinions from the Black community before ever starting the writing process. But when asked to deliver feedback to Disney directly— Locke was more diplomatic. Like Rapf, he suggested a few line changes, such as cutting the word darky, and made the general point that imagery of black servants singing happily could be considered incongruous with the experience of black audiences in 1946. Locke suggested that Disney seek out more help from the black community to rid the film of stereotypes. This same suggestion was made by, of all people, Joseph Breen, the arch-conservative anti-Semite who ran the censorship board 
the Production Code Administration. Breen told Disney that if he refused to hire a Black consultant, he should at least accept counsel from a member of Breen's staff, a white Southerner named Francis Harmon. Harmon thought a lot of Disney's problems would go away if he just had something in the movie that acknowledged that Uncle Remus was meant to be a relic of the past and not a representative of real Black men in America in 1946. Harmon suggested giving Remus the line, Me and my kind, we's out of date too. Disney did not do this. Instead, having become aware that the Black press had suggested misgivings about the movie Sight Unseen, he decided that the communists who had supposedly brainwashed his workers into striking against him were now attempting to sabotage Song of the South before it ever saw a theatrical release. If you heard that and were like, well, wait a minute, didn't Disney hire a communist to rewrite this movie knowing he was a communist? Yes, that's true. And as previously mentioned, Disney had pursued known leftist Paul Robeson to play Uncle Remus. At some point, Walt thought the way to inoculate himself from what he perceived as the threat posed to him by communists was to get a few strategically chosen communists in his corner. But by the time Song of the South was finished, Disney had gotten what he needed from Rapf. He had cast virtual unknown James Basket in the part he had once begged Robeson to consider. And the wounds of the strike had calcified into an obsession with the idea that he, Walt Disney, was a political victim. Rapf was eventually taken off of Song of the South due to a personal dispute with his co-writer and assigned instead to rewrite Cinderella, which he imbued with a spirit of laborers' rebellion. Rapf's name was taken off Cinderella, which was released after he was blacklisted. Rapf was credited as a screenwriter on Song of the South, but he later said he could not take credit for the finished product of the film. He noted in his autobiography that Br'er Rabbit, in particular, turned out different than he had hoped. The film as a whole had turned out more racist. At one point, Rapf was invited to go to a leftist-run event to defend Song of the South in debate with speakers from the NAACP. Rapf found he wasn't able to mount a defense of the film Disney had ultimately made. He later said... I had to agree with the attackers. According to Rapf, the key problem was that the finished film had left it ambiguous as to when it took place, by depicting the plantation itself and both the whites and the blacks on it as they would have looked during slavery instead of during Reconstruction. In his script, Johnny's family had fallen into poverty as many white landowners did after losing their free labor. And Raph was shocked to see the film and note that the family's plantation was in tip-top shape, as were their finances as a whole. As he put it, as he put it, the women wear different dresses every time you look at them. 
I indicated in my script, very clearly, that they should be threadbare because they lost the war. Rapf was also astonished to see that the finished film implied that the patriarch of the family was some kind of noble newspaper columnist who was working in Atlanta because of a disagreement with his wife. In Rapf's script, according to Rapf, he leaves because they haven't got enough money to pay the people who are working there. He goes to Atlanta to earn some money so he can pay the blacks who work on the farm. Raph was employed by Disney for two and a half years. In 1947, he asked for a raise and was denied. So he quit. Still, many years later, Raph described Walt Disney as, quote, the best producer I ever worked for, the most imaginative, the most helpful, the most interested. He really cared about movies, which is more than you can say about a lot of guys I worked with. Even politically, Rapf didn't have a problem with Disney. He didn't believe Walt was an anti-Semite, and he applauded Walt's efforts to insert environmentalist messages into his animated movies. To Rapf, Disney was, like a lot of people who have accumulated a lot, a reactionary out of self-interest. As Rapf put it, I think he was a decent enough guy who was very conservative. And it got worse over time as he got richer. Everyone changes over time. Around the time Rapf left Disney, he also left the Communist Party. Not because he stopped believing in what it stood for, but simply because he had grown tired of all the grueling meetings and tired of hiding his association with an organization whose goals he truly believed in. But being part of the party didn't make him feel like he was doing anything to advance those goals. Especially during World War II, he felt that the meetings consisted of a lot of circular talk. He decided that David O. Selznick had had the right idea. Between politics and movies, Maurice Raff chose making movies. But due to other circumstances... He ended up making those movies mostly outside of Hollywood, in a purely commercial sphere where, ironically, Raph felt he had more creative control. A few months after leaving Disney, Raph quit Hollywood before he could be fired. He had heard that members of the party were starting to receive subpoenas. This was not long after Raph had decided to quit the party, but now he was worried that his former affiliation with communism could embarrass his father, who was still working at MGM. So Maurice Raph moved his wife and kids to Vermont where he planned to work as a freelance short story writer and hoped to publish a novel. Instead, he went about three years without a job. His family mostly lived off of the $500 a month they earned from renting out their Hollywood home to an actress's mother. Raff believed he was blacklisted primarily due to Hollywood reporter columnist Jack Moffat's testimony 
but he was spared by his friends, such as Richard Collins, who had been the writing partner of unabashed communist Paul Jericho. Shortly before testifying, Collins had stayed at Rapf's house in Vermont for several days and had asked Rapf to invest in a business he was trying to start. Rapf had no money to invest. Two days after leaving Rapf's house, Collins testified and named not Rapf, but Bud Schulberg, who had left the party long before, after what he claimed was an interrogation at a party meeting over alleged anti-Semitism in his novel, What Makes Sammy Run? The blacklist caused a rift in Rapf and Schulberg's friendship, not because Schulberg named names, which he did, but, according to Rapf, because Rapf failed to call Schulberg and show his support once Schulberg's name was named, and because Schulberg had a mutual friend call Rapf and tell him that Schulberg was going to testify. Rapf did think Schulberg's testimony was unnecessary, because Schulberg had not been subpoenaed. Instead, after he was named by Collins, Schulberg became convinced that the Book of the Month Club was going to drop his latest novel, The Disenchanted, which, as we mentioned earlier, included fictionalized portraits of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Rapf and the Winter Carnival debacle. Rapf and Schulberg didn't speak for 13 years. Schulberg's naming names was part of it, but Rapf said they had begun to drift apart over their fierce disagreement about the Korean War, which Rapf thought was as unnecessary as most other wars, and which Schulberg, who had become very anti-Soviet, supported. It was only when both were dropping their sons off for their first semesters at Dartmouth that they reconnected and reestablished a friendship. But they still avoided talking about the blacklist and why they had let their friendship become a victim of it. The topic only came up once. Schulberg had written a memoir, Moving Pictures, about growing up in Hollywood as the son of one of the first movie moguls. The book ended with his entrance into Dartmouth as a college freshman. His publisher wanted him to expand the story, to include the tale of writing What Makes Sammy Run and his fallout with the Communist Party. In order to get the book published, Schulberg promised that he would cover that period in a sequel. Rapf told him he could not do that because it would require him to name names again, to repeat the sin. Schulberg told Rapf that he would find a way. But if he did, he didn't manage to publish it before he died in 2009. Rapf was determined not to name names, and until his dying day, he didn't. Over the years of the blacklist, Rapf was subpoenaed several times, but he never appeared to testify. The first time he was called... He coincidentally contracted the mumps right before the hearing, and a sympathetic doctor put him in quarantine until that round of hearings ended. For a while, he thought he had successfully hidden from the glare of the government inquisitors, 
although when he got his FBI file years later, he discovered that the Bureau had tracked his every move from the moment he arrived in Moscow in 1934. Rapf made a good living while he was blacklisted by working on industrial films. He got into this racket because, initially, many of these films were animated. And thanks to Walt Disney and Song of the South, Rapf had experience writing for animation. The former communist who held fast to socialist ideals, even after leaving the party, loved working on these sponsored films because he got to do a lot more filmmaking than he had been allowed to do in Hollywood. As a screenwriter, he had rarely been allowed on set. As the maker of promotional movies for the Fragrance Foundation or animated educational shorts, he got to direct, produce, cast, and edit— And he was free of the endless and capricious notes process of Hollywood. He also wrote some TV episodes. Then, in 1971, Raff's alma mater, Dartmouth, asked him to start and run their film studies program. He continued there for most of his life, which ended in 2003. Because Rapf never fully went back to work in Hollywood after the blacklist, the films he wrote for Disney, Song of the South and Cinderella, remain the most prominent titles on his filmography. With both films, Rapf tried to be true to his ideology. Cinderella is nothing if not sympathetic to the plight of exploited workers, and he came to Song of the South with a good-faith desire to destroy stereotypes and celebrate Black ingenuity. His failure to actually do that is testament to the limits of what white allies can do inside a system that excludes people of color from any substantive creative or decision-making power. Next week, we will talk about Song of the South's life after its original release— and how its most successful revival coincided with a wave of Hollywood filmmaking that sought to exploit the Black audience's desire to go to the movies and see images of themselves that they could cheer for on screen. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. This episode was edited by Jared O'Connell. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include lists of all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. You can also support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. 
You can subscribe on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And here's some big news. After five years of You Must Remember This, we're finally selling merch. Go to podswag.com slash remember now to find You Must Remember This t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs, all of which are perfect for holiday season gifts. We'll be adding more items to the store in the future, including signed copies of my books. That's podswag.com slash remember. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher.